And that means it's time for our journalism corner when we talk to a reporter, someone that we uh, want to catch up with about stories they know very well. Before we get there, just quickly, though, there's been some reaction to our conversation in the last half hour about uh, Zellers and the resurrection. One listener says, why don't they bring back only the Zellers restaurant, period? That will be a hit. Forget about the retail sales. Put the Zellers restaurant in the bay. It just makes so much sense. Yes, there's a good idea for you. Um, would love to see the Woodward stores reopen. They had quality merchandise and their sales were uh, quality merchandise that was reduced, not cheap, brought in goods as well. So we've been asking you what stores you'd like to see come back today or come back to Canada, uh, other than Zellers, <laughs> which is already coming back. You know, there was a time when many national reporters in this country, uh, about 15 years ago and after, would spend time covering the war in Afghanistan. So names like Kandahar and Kabul, Helmand and Herat conjure up not just headlines and those images from television, but memories of people and places, tragedy, triumph, smells even. We witnessed the sacrifices made by Canadian troops, the risks taken by the Afghans hired to help them navigate and that help us navigate an unfamiliar and often dangerous place. So the fall of Kabul a year this week and the return of the Taliban brought a lot of those memories flooding back, wondering what happened to the people that one had met there and worked with. Uh, few Canadian workers spent as much time covering that war as Jazz Joe Hall, my next guest. He was one. He was actually the one who welcomed me to Kabul on my first ever assignment there back in 2006 on a warm day in uh, in August or July, I think it was. Uh, listeners will be familiar with Jazz from the Jazz Joe Hall Show on Vancouver's 980 CKNW, which airs weekday afternoons from 3 to 6. And he joins me now. Jazz, thanks so much. Nice to talk to you again. Oh, yeah, my pleasure, my friend. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, one year um, since the Taliban's coming back into power. I just remember those images of Kabul a year ago this week and just what it was like. Uh, I know you covered it as well. What, what's been your impression? What have your thoughts been about looking back now for... Uh, on the year that the Taliban have been in power, and just how much has changed there? You know, uh, I've always tried to stay an optimist, and uh, I still remain an optimist. Uh, but, you know, when I look at what has transpired in the past year, it looks bleak at this moment. And I really do hope we can turn a corner and things can, to a certain degree, uh, move slowly, even though it is the Taliban in power today. But at least, hopefully, life will get better. Um, when I look at Afghanistan today, I see women who are difficult time uh, going about their day. And there are a lot of things that were wrong in regards to what transpired over the last 20 years in regards to getting, you know, uh, resources and funding to the people that actually mattered. But you, in fits and starts, you know, you did see improvement for women. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. But the fact that in last year, in a very brief time, we've moved backwards. Uh, you're seeing some women, from what I hear, talking to friends and colleagues still in Kabul. There are women who are defined and walking in Kabul and not having to wear a burqa, not wanting to wear a burqa. But the vast majority of women have been impacted. and Most aren't going to school. Uh, that saddens me the most. That's the toughest thing for me because you were seeing some progress, no matter how tough it was there. That's probably the toughest part for me. Um, I've talked to friends and colleagues um, who worked with me there and have now moved to Pakistan because they don't feel safe and don't think they will be safe with the present government there. So it's a little of both, my friend. I, I feel um, I still feel very hopeful, but I'm saddened at what has transpired in the past year. Yeah, I often think back to the stories that uh, I think a lot of us did when we were there, you know, maybe 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, going to schools, uh, girls' schools mainly, and seeing uh, girls who must have been, who must be in their early 20s now, and wondering 
you know, there was a lot of hope and optimism then that they were getting an education, that things would be different, that the Afghanistan that they were growing up in would be different from the ones, the one that their mothers grew up in, that their father, that their grandmothers grew up in, that there was going to be a place for them in Afghan society and a place of prominence. And so I look at it now and I think about the girls that were in those schools and wonder what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of a, a doctor I interviewed uh, who was taking, um, who invited us along. Uh, to her driver's license test. She was being just driving around Kabul and uh, she was taking a class, but she was uh, going to take a test very uh, soon and she invited us along. I mean, I think of her, and uh, here's a very smart individual, a doctor by training, uh, and wanting to drive for the first time. Simple things like that that, that you, you know, can change a person's life. Uh, it's things like that that really, you know, I, I, I still remain hopeful, as I said, but when I See what has transpired. You know, it's a trillion dollars U.S. taxpayers paid for. We paid hundreds of millions of dollars as Canadians. We lost uh, men and women who gave up um, their lives uh, fighting in Afghanistan. And uh, I, I wish we had kept our eye on the ball there. Uh, and I think part of it, and it's more so the United States than us, but I think we there was no coherent strategy, a coherent strategy that looked like, how do we change this country? What can we do to help? But also, it is a tribal society. Where do we not need to be helping or trying to help? And I think the U.S. fundamentally took their eye off the ball, whether it was Iraq, number one, but also there wasn't a coherent policy. They said a coherent strategy that say, where where are we going with this country and how do we get those resources to the front lines? At the reach of government, any government always comes down to can you get those resources and services to the front line? Uh, so if you're sitting in Kabul, are you getting any services to the people in Kandahar or Herat, all these regions? The inability to do so was there on day one and when it was there in year 20 as well. And that's a fundamental failure on our part. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that would be the most disappointing is to think that, uh, you know, to use the term, an overused term of blood and treasure, but, you know, the sacrifices that were made there by the Canadian soldiers, who we all spent lots of time with, and know how mm-hmm. dedicated they were to it, just how scary a place it was, and how uh, dangerous it was for for some of those years, some of those more kinetic years. Uh, but also just thinking that, that it was all, not that it was all for naught, but that it has all been so quickly swept away uh, is, is difficult to, uh, to comprehend. And I can't imagine how hard it is for those who actually did the fighting, not just those who were there chronicling it. Yeah, I mean, right up to the last minute, beyond the images that are seared in our mind with the uh, folks uh, jumping on a plane as it's about to take off from Kabul airport, um, you know, what frustrates me is that even the inability of our public service, our bureaucracy to move quickly in moments of war or in moments of crises to get people out that helped Canadian soldiers. Uh, You know, we have a great group of folks military veterans um, and others uh, who worked on the front lines uh, in Afghanistan. They were able to get 3,000 of these Afghans who helped uh, Canadians uh, during the war out. But we're looking at three to 5,000 more potentially. And it's still a challenge to to get them a passport or any documentation where they can leave Afghanistan. And they're not going to do it from Afghanistan. And many of them are having to rely on going across the border in Pakistan, having to travel to Afghanistan to get to Pakistan's border, and then from there getting the documentation to come back to Canada. We have at least three to 5,000 more Afghans who held up during the war that are still waiting for help. Uh, and I think that's one place 
that if there needs to be a priority today and now, it should be there. I don't care if the documentation is there. If you have the names, figure it out afterwards. Get these people out. And that, that also, I think, right to the last minute, I mean, we should have at least been able to get that, uh, that part of the um, uh, Afghan mission done well, and we didn't. And, and it frustrates me to this day. It is frustrating because we know firsthand just how important um, that work was, um, how yeah. dangerous it was. Uh, you know, it was well remunerated. There was that, but it was also very dangerous. And I think we were all completely aware of what would happen to anyone who had worked for, you know, a NATO ally uh, in Afghanistan in any capacity when the Taliban came back. I spoke to one uh, gentleman last week who's trying to bring over uh, members of a legal team that he had uh, within the Afghan National Army. He's a Canadian, but he was training Afghan lawyers who were essentially, you know, their their duty was to prosecute suspected infiltrators, uh, Taliban mm-hmm. infiltrators, so essentially prosecuting the Taliban, they're still stuck there. And it seems yeah. kind of boggles the mind because we made promises. We did make, make promises. Maybe they weren't overt, but they were certainly understood to be, you know, you come work with us and we'll protect you if anything ever should go wrong. And I just don't feel like we've done it. And I don't think it's going to get better uh, just because of what we heard a few weeks ago with uh, um, one of the al-Qaeda leaders, Ayman al-Zawari, uh, being killed by Americans. Uh, he was in Kabul once again. He was believed to be in Pakistan for so many years. And with the fall of the Afghan government, here we have probably the second in command uh, after bin Laden at one point. And now he's quietly moved to Kabul and uh, Americans were able to uh, take him out. But once again, uh, the billions of dollars that the Americans have frozen, $3.5 billion U.S., uh, which could help uh, everyday Afghans. I'm not saying that the Taliban wouldn't pilfer it, uh, but that money's not coming back, especially after Al-Zawari's, uh, Aman Al-Zawari's uh, death. And the fact that he's moved in so quietly and quickly into, into uh, Afghanistan. A safe house right downtown. I mean, he was living just a few blocks from where all the other compounds were back in the day, all the other where all the media stayed and so on. He wasn't too far away. He was living right there in the heart of Kabul. I I mean, I guess we'll we'll take a quick break. But one of the questions that always fascinates me through this is how do you help the people of Afghanistan in what is a dire humanitarian crisis? and still hold the Taliban to account. Canada's sanctions regime is still very strict, stricter than than many other places right now. It's preventing aid from getting to the ground. And it feels like, how do you walk that line now? How do you, you know, hold the Taliban to account for the human rights abuses that we know they're committing, but also help the people of Afghanistan and, and help, you know, try to help them avoid starvation? It seems like an awful quandary we've all been put in right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, You know, I think you and I have, are of, of, of the same mind because we watched this so closely and that there was so much hope uh you can only rely on really good charitable groups that that have done this before and are able to get some help but it's very difficult as you say because most of that money isn't getting through you've got a significant amount of children almost like a million uh, children that are dealing with malnutrition already and this is a situation as the winter coming uh will get worse and a significant amount of dollars still held back and i think there may be some pressure hopefully in the united states to get some of that money on, you know, maybe not keep all of it frozen for a little while because there is going to be imagery coming from there. When when food prices are soaring, there is malnutrition. That uh, you know, there's a million children uh, potentially there uh, dealing with hunger issues. You've got to do do something. Ninety seven percent of that country is below the poverty line, uh, yeah. according to the United Nations. So that in, in itself tells you there's a, a lot more to do there. Great to have Jazz Joe Hall, my old Global National colleague. Uh, You'll know as the host of the Jazz Joe Hall Show on Vancouver's 980 CKNW, which airs weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. 
Chaz, we were talking before the break about Afghanistan, but while we were in Afghanistan for most of it, uh, when we were doing those reporting trips, you were based in Delhi for, for a lot of it. Um, a big week, uh, both for India and Pakistan, celebrating mm-hmm. 75 years of independence. Uh, what did you make of the celebrations? It was, it was quite a patriotic uh, event in India, at least. Yeah, you know, one thing, even when I uh, was living in India back in uh, 2008, there is a, I saw a growth of a pan-Indian nationalism. And it's actually a positive nationalism where people are proud of, of what India has achieved. There is a tremendous amount of optimism. And at that point, Manmohan Singh was the prime minister of India. He was one of the architects of opening up the economy in the early 1990s. Um, but since then, and the growth has been there, but uh, there has been a, I think India has taken a very hard right turn. And that's been the challenge. I think people should still remain hopeful with India. It's done wonderful things. It's heading in the right direction. It's politics today is what concerns me the most. And what I mean by that, there is a more of a harder line Hindu nationalistic uh, view and perspective of India. India has always been very proud of its uh, diversity, its tolerance, live and let live uh, view. Uh, this is the first time probably in its history, in its independence, where it's taken a more of a harder line. Uh, its BJP majority party under Mr. Modi uh, has uh, stoked and pushed for more of a Hindu nationalist identity, uh, which is much tougher on minorities who live there, particularly Muslim communities. Um, so as I watched today, I was very hopeful for India the other day in regards to the 75th anniversary, Pakistan as well. But behind the scenes, when you, when you move the curtain back, there is still many challenges before India. It's a different India. One I don't think is as tolerant as it once was. And, and as we were talking about um, last night on the show, we had a guest on to talk about this, that, uh, you know, it is the fastest growing major economy in the world. It's expected it'll be the third largest economy by 2050. Uh, Prime Minister Modi was talking about uh, India becoming a developed nation by the time they celebrate 100 years. Uh, but there's, they're facing a similar challenge to what I saw in China back in, uh, in the knots while you were in Delhi, which is how do you balance progress and sustainability? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at where India is today, uh, it cannot replicate what Taiwan did or South Korea did or even what China did, uh, heavy reliance on cheap labor and the assembly line. Today with technology, those assembly lines that we that once would hire many, many people, millions of people, are hiring less people. So their growth is very different, much more reliant on less on government, more on the private sector. Uh, it is run by state governments, less of an impact of the um, of the federal government, number one. There's a significantly large population. The average age in India is about 27. Put that in context. The average age in Canada is about 41. So there's a lot of young people looking for work. Um, and they're not, uh, the industries there are not employing people as fast as they need to. So there's some underlying economic challenges that are there beyond the issues of nationalism that I talked about. The other underlying challenge uh, that I don't think the West talks about enough is climate change. We certainly talk about climate change in the context of Canada, the United States, and and the Western world. But when you look at India, you have a country with about 17% of the global population, yet 4% of the uh, fresh water. Uh, You see that about 80% of the rainfall in India happens between June and September, the vast majority of it within 25 days during the monsoons. Uh, By 2050, 30 Indian cities will face uh, 
grave water risk. Uh, nine of the 25 uh, countries in the top 25 cities in the world uh, that are dealing with the air pollution, the worst 25, nine of them are, of, are, you know, are in India. So there yeah. is huge challenge of rising water levels in states like Gujarat. So India, I think, and with rising temperatures as well, when I lived in Delhi, temperatures would hit high about 45. Now they're hitting 49, 50, 52 yeah. some days. And, and you're that, seeing that really, yeah, they had that really early heat wave this year too. I remember we spoke to someone in Delhi about it. It was up around 50 degrees in 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 April or early May. Yeah, you're looking at times where it's so hot, birds are falling from the sky. I recently, an article written in the New, York, New Yorker where they were talking about that India, you know, and I don't want to be completely negative about it, but you know, it's going to be a country that I think is the pointy end of the spear when you're dealing with climate change. It may be in parts of India too hot to live in certain regions. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with drought? How do you deal with the glaciers of the Himalayas where that pour down into the Ganges where three to 400 million people rely on farming and for their livelihood? And as that waterway is impacted, it impacts people directly. So as much as we talk about the growth of the economy, which I think is wonderful because you're taking tens of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, when I look at climate change, and I saw it there when I lived there. I mean, Beijing didn't have the best air when I moved there, and certainly you're aware of that very well. But Indeed. Delhi is uh, is worse than Beijing today. So that's the it challenge is. of growth. But how do you move a country forward with 1.3 and potentially by, uh, I think it's 2070, 1.6 billion people when the population peaks? And how do you continue to nurture and take care of the environment as well? So uh, at the surface of it, India has achieved a lot, but it has significant challenges moving forward. I still remain very optimistic on the country. I think it, it's, it's got a wonderful future ahead of it. But as long as it really focuses on those deep, deep economic challenges, societal challenges, and environmental challenges that are before it. Jazz, thanks so much. Great to catch up. Hope to see you soon. My pleasure, my friend. Look forward to doing it again.